Welcome to the Bliss Broker Podcast, a place to come and dive into the lives of people who've lived life's biggest moments and experiences, good and bad. Join us here every week as we focus on human interest pieces from all over the world. Tune in to get inspired, think outside the box, and find your bliss. Hi guys, welcome to this week's episode of The Bliss Broker. So I'm doing things a little bit different this week. My next guest got on a Skype call with me a couple weeks ago and we hit it off. I knew we would. Before I knew it, we were 10 minutes into the conversation and I realized I had not introduced her. She is, I've fallen in love with her. She was introduced to me by a peer of mine in my podcasting all-stars accountability group, Mr. Michael Bailey Brown. He's the host and creator of the Tangled Mind podcast, and he had his mom on, and they very openly discussed what it was like dealing with his dad, her husband, suffering from borderline personality disorder. And the conversation touched my heart, and I thought I have to have her on my show and help her spread not only what it's like for her to deal with this day in and day out, but what she's trying to do for the betterment of society over in the UK, and really magnifying the lack of support and the antiquated way that they deal with mental health over in the UK as well as here. I mean, I think it's a widespread issue. So without further ado, episode 20 of The Bliss Broker, Miss Lisa Bailey Brown. The fact of being told you've got to stay at home, especially when things are all over the place and my husband's mental health is so bad. Yeah. You know, work Going out to work was my escape, my place to go to... Um, you know, for normality, if you like, for whatever normal is. But the 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 COVID thing has made it so that I I've had a lot of time to think about stuff. And recently, even last week, I I found out that the job that I was doing um, was ended, and um, I was a bit gutted and I was you know heartbroken really because I thought this is this is what I wanted to do and it's fell to pieces. But I'm a believer that everything happens for a reason and and actually within the space of a few days I've had an outpouring of messages from people from my network that have been really supportive and I've had job, job offers, I'm getting opportunities and suggestions for things that I can do that are not things that I ever would have thought I could do because I've never had a very, uh, very good self-belief, I'm not a very confident person yeah. But then I'm getting messages from ladies saying, I only joined the networking group because it was you, because you've made me feel so comfortable, because you're just really nice and smiley and laid back and don't feel intimidated by you. And, and, and I was just thinking, these people are seeing something that, that I don't see. Mm-hmm. And then it made me think, hang on a minute, so maybe I can do these things. So in the space of a week, my confidence has probably doubled, which wow. I always... I always struggle because to me being confident and what we call big headed over here and cocky and like, you know, being full of yourself is not me. I'm, I'm very much, I'm like you said, I'm, I'm an introverted extrovert. So when you first meet me, I'm quite shy and nervous, but then as the relationships develop, then I'm crazy, jolly, stupid, you know, (laughs) everyone seems to be drawn to me because they'll say, Oh, you're such fun. You'll have a laugh and a joke. But then I've got the side of me that really just wants to be quiet and, and yeah. have my own space and thoughts. And that's because of all of the things that have gone on over the last 22 years. It gets a bit intense. And although I'm known to be a talker, um, people find it really hard, including my family, when I'm quiet. What's wrong? 
and it's there's nothing wrong i'm just actually wanting to be quiet so the whole covid thing for me has given me time to be quiet to be angry to be sad to be everything and a lot of time to reflect and realize that like i put on my post the other day it's taken me to be 40 nearly 44 in two weeks to realize that i'm not that bad you know there's you know I'm a mum, I've been a mum since I was 17, I've got grandkids, you know, I'm all these things that some people never get to do, experience or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, even even my age, you know, some people don't get to be my age and I've got, my brother died, I've got friends, family that never did and I'm just grateful, I'm just, I, I look at things in a different way and just before the Covid thing, one of my colleagues at work, she's 54, she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer that was terminal. Mm. She's kind of my perspective because whenever I get a moment where I start to have a bit too much, you know, woe is me kind of thing, I think, hang on a minute, Lisa, your life isn't that bad. Okay, you're not happy. I am very sad and I wish the situation with my husband was different, but it's not. But on the grand scheme of things, I've got my life, my health, you know, I've got a roof over my head, food. Lots of people don't have many of those things. Um, if not all of them so yeah just it's given me an opportunity to put things into perspective really um don't get me wrong I cry most days but I cry for what I've lost if you like or what I feel like I've lost and that I'll never get back but you know you never know what's around the corner do you see and it's like with my job you know I wasn't expecting to be in the situation I'm in now but then I've just had a meeting a minute ago and opportunities are just coming from all over so it's crazy and then obviously like yourself speaking to you it's just like well, Everything I love happens. that you're making all this happen. Like that's that's the part that is so hard for us to acknowledge is you're making this happen. Nobody's doing this for you. Nobody's making you get up and get dressed and drive to town and meet with all these people and you know show up and you're showing up for other people, but you're also you're you're subconsciously aware of your value because you're showing up. Yeah. And that's, yeah. it's hard to, because I always say, if we could see ourselves through the eyes of people that, that care about us and love us, we'd be unstoppable. But yeah. what most of what keeps us from living our dreams and attacking our, our passions and all of that is our lack of confidence and fear. Yeah. Fear yeah. is a real asshole. Like fear yeah. can keep us yeah. from doing all these beautiful things. And it affected me for a very long time too, because I've, I was able to, um, like look back on my life when I started my personal development, like really hardcore and, yeah. and look for the gaps. And like, and I was able to go back and find the root of the issue. Like, why was I setting yeah. myself up for failure in these shitty relationships? Why was I letting men take advantage of me? Why was I choosing to be in some weird subconscious level with men that were, were broken? Like mm. pretty much every single man that I've spent any time with has been addicted to something. Yeah. So I, through those relationships, I had to experience and have to, but you know, I needed it for sanity. I started going to Al-Anon because I was with a guy for six years that was a severe alcoholic. And, you know, yeah. I found out he was selling dope behind my back and, and would leave and not come home for three days. And I mean, when I think back on that time in my life it was about 10 years ago, I'm like, how in the hell did you survive that? I mean, I spent a lot of time in parking lots in between jobs, smoking all the cigarettes and talking to my girlfriends on the phone. And, you know, I was just in severe uh, to varying degrees throughout most of my adult life. I was in survival mode. And so I had Mm -hmm. no, I had no time to stop and think about what I wanted. I, I spent a lot of my time yearning for what could be. Yeah. 
and I and I never thought I was it was ever going to happen. I had all these. I have. I mean, I had a great life. Don't get me wrong. Running probably similar to you, running parallel with all that drama was me, Harmony, a girl that's naturally happy, naturally sees the positive, naturally can make friends, naturally yeah. loves to socialize and look at the bright side of everything. So running parallel with that chaos was a lot of really fun, great adventures. Yeah. Um, so I don't like to, to tell, and that's because of my fucking strength though. That's because of my perseverance. That's not yeah. any kind of, you know, something I was given. I was finally able to accept and take credit for my badassery for yeah. lack of a better term. And, and that started building. And I really like people say like, how did you get to the point of where you are now doing what you're doing? Do finally doing something that I've always wanted to do, help people podcast, interact with people from all over the world, help people, inspire people. And it's because basically I got sick of my own shit. I got sick of hearing myself moan to myself. You know what I mean? You, I think, right, you must be the American version of me because (laughs) absolutely killed me off. You're the same age as me. I look at you and I think, you look a little bit similar to me with your tattoos and everything. And then I'm like, hang on a minute, you've just said the same sentence that I say all the time. I'm actually, when people say, how are you? What's happening? I'll say, do you know what? I actually don't want to talk about it anymore because I'm sick of my own shit. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> it makes me laugh so much. It's, it's so such, and that's what's crazy is there's so much of us running around and to look at us on the outside looking in, most women would never, like we hide it so well, right? Yeah, we just function yeah. and we go through the motions and we, we don't want to post anything negative. So, you know, we don't want anybody feeling sorry for us, God forbid. Yeah, so we yeah. put on our big girl britches every day and just go through the motions. But there's a lot of like, like yeah. sadness right under the surface, just like, yeah. like you at the drop of a hat, you could start yeah. crying at the yeah. drop of the hat. You could start yeah. going down the, into the doldrums and starting yeah. to fixate on all the bad things that have happened. And I'm telling you right now, gratitude changed my whole life. And it's something yeah. that comes up in a lot of episodes that I do here because mm-hmm. it is just, it seems hokey until you start doing it and then the results come. Yeah. Just like yeah. you said a few minutes ago, having that gratitude and seeing that a lot of people don't make it to 44. Yeah, exactly. And you don't look 44. You look, you know, so you, you and I tell people that all the time if people meet me, because I'll be 45 in a couple months and people are like, oh, you, you look you don't so look young. Better. I'm like, yeah. how, the, I, how that happened? I have zero idea because mm-hmm. I've done the drugs. I've done the booze. <laughs> I've done the cigarettes. Most of my adult life, I've, you know, I started ex- like kind of dabbling in drugs. I say dabbling, but my drug of choice when I was a late teenager was acid. Um, yeah. And and I didn't do, I did it responsibly, but I yeah. did love to get crazy. I mean, yeah. I loved to live life to the fullest. So how I ended up here with a health, my health about me is, yeah, I yeah. feel like I'm here for a reason. And I'm sure you That's, probably feel yeah. that way too. Yeah, totally. I feel like that there's something that I'm meant to do. Um, and I, one of my, a friend that I've just made recently, actually, she said to me, she says, are you a, are you a spiritual person? And I said to her, I don't know I've never really thought about it and she spoke to me and she asked me these questions and she said I think you are and you just don't realize and she started talking to me about stuff and we just really I mean I only just met her but we really connected and really got on very well but there was things that she would say that um just literally like reminded me of me and it's like with yourself you're saying about how you know you've done stuff you've done stuff in the past and how you've got to be 
who you are and everything. I think back and I think, actually, my past was pretty boring because I, I didn't do drugs because I was like the... this Because, you see, for me, I was the... I was the clever girl at school who was prim and proper and didn't do anything wrong and never had a boyfriend and was very plain and nobody liked me and um, didn't have any confidence. And so what I started to do at school was I started to figure out quite early on that the easiest way for me to make friends was if I made fun of myself. Because if I made fun of all of the things that they were making fun about anyway, A, it wouldn't hurt me because I was drawing my attention to it myself. And B, they thought it was funny and then they became my friends. And that's kind of carried on all the way through. And um, but I, um, I just, I don't know, I just, sometimes I just think to myself, there is a reason I'm here. I don't know what it is. And every now and again, then I think, oh, maybe that's what the reason is. But then that passes by and then I think, well, no, there must be another reason because I'm still not, I'm still not fulfilled. I'm still not at that, at that point. But sorry, I'm just looking around because there's a there's a traffic warden driving round and round and round. And I'm thinking, he's probably looking, thinking, is she going to get a ticket? But I've literally just parked here and it says two hours. So I'm thinking, you bye. He's just checking to make sure you're not doing something you don't need to be doing. What's she doing in her car talking to herself? You can hear an American voice. What's happening? Um, yeah, so, um, no, I, I I totally agree about, um, you know, we, we we definitely have something that we're here for. And um, whatever that is, I'm sure at some point it'll all become apparent. I know that I'm meant to help people. I wasn't planning on for me to have to help people because of my husband's mental health and all of that. And, you know, how that's come about. Because, you you know, I didn't wake up one day and think, oh, I'm going to marry a man who's going to be suicidal and I'm going to witness all of this stuff. Um, But what what has changed for me in the last year, and and, and again, obviously, because of what you do, the personal development thing is is thing is something I've never ever looked at ever, never even thought about it because, you know, I've just been focused on being employed and doing my job for the company I work for. Never really thought about how I could improve myself or do stuff for me because it's always been about everybody else. If it's not the kids, it was Matthew and vice versa, and I'd put all of my feelings to one side. And then, so last year, um, last August. Well, last March, actually, I joined um, a, a networking group online, which was, a, it's basically, essentially, it's it's a personal development group. So you go on each day and you do tasks that were sales-related or, you know, business-related or all different manner of things just to get you going and to get you fired up for the day before work. And it was really, really good. And then they had a, a live event that was going to happen in up in Blackpool. Well, obviously, I live down in Cornwall, and this is why my whole thing with the Yellow Brick Road, this is where the whole story came from. So I'd Matthew had been ill since, well, he's been ill for 22 years, but he started getting ill again in 2015. And to cut a very long story short, um, we'd had a really bad time, but last year he started to um, get a bit better and was going through a good period. And so I decided to get back out and network which networking is a massive thing down here in Cornwall and Devon and um, get out and see people but I knew that I wasn't a very confident person so I thought I needed to go and I need to go somewhere and do something so I joined this group went to Blackpool and when I was there there was a chap who isn't your typical inspirational speaker from from the English people's perspective of being suited and booted a shirt and tie he was very much like yourself and me you know um a tattooed chap with 
um, a bald head and he'd wear baggy jeans and a t-shirt and looked like he was still from the 90s and uh, he he'd previously done drugs and sold drugs and he'd been shot at and he'd got a really massive story of how he ended up being this entrepreneur networking chap who's got a massive business blah blah and so he did the talk and when he and there was other people as well but when he did his there was two slides that changed everything for me and the first one came up and it just had the words fun and when I read that and I, even now I got goosebumps and I started to cry and everyone in the room were strangers I'd not I'd only just met them so that was a massive thing for me as well being the introverted extrovert and I'm crying <laughs> in front of all of these strangers and um it was the realization that that Lisa you know I, the Lisa that was was no more I'd forgotten how to have fun because I'd wrapped myself up in this bubble of Matthew's illness and I'd become part of it I'd become consumed with the whole mental illness and the fact that because the incidents that happened always seemed to be when I'd had fun you know if I'd had a drink and got drunk then he'd have done something bad because he said well you look like you were happy and you didn't need me anymore so then I'd stop doing stuff because I thought it was going to actually be me that killed him it would be my fault and so that made me cry. And then there was another slide that came up on the screen and it was simply a picture of Brad and his son. And his son was, was into drugs and you could see that he was in Manchester still and he was going in the wrong direction. And he tried to help him. And it just said, I realised I couldn't fix everyone, not even my son. Wow. And I just thought, wow, I've been trying to fix Matthew and I can't fix him. I can support him, but I can't fix him. It's not my job to fix him and I can't do it. And so when I came back from Blackpool, my brain was full of so much emotion and sort of different thought processes and, you know. You had a, a moment of enlightenment, sounds oh, like. unbelievably so. And yeah. I just thought, I know that, because in the March I'd started this networking group, which was called Family Mental Health Support UK. And it was just aimed at, the reason I did it was to um, aim it at other family members so that they basically would come forward and I'd have someone to talk to who could relate to my experience as the wife or even the brother or the sister or the mother or the father and initially I ended up getting lots of people who were actually ill themselves because there's in the UK the support is is shocking even though you know we have the NHS and we're very lucky that the mental health system is 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 just it's neglected really it's it follows a really old model from the 1950s everything's textbook They've lost touch with the fact that it's the, you know, 2020 and the, the problems and issues that were around in the 50s are doubled, if not trebled, if not quadrupled nowadays with social media and the expectations for men, women. You've got to be this way. You've got to be that way. You can't just be you. There's, there's just so much stuff going on. And yet when you end up with any form of mental illness, you know, the waiting lists are long. You can't get the help and support you need and people are dying on waiting list basically because they end up taking their lives because they cannot troll it anymore and so I thought I was going insane myself because I would sit there and I'd be thinking what can I do to save him how can I do this what can I do you know and it went round and round and round in circles and then I realized that I couldn't save him but I thought well I need to save myself so I need to speak to other people and relate to them and I tried to do that and actually unfortunately the problem was that Everybody that was online on Twitter and all of that, they were all from America or Australia or Canada. 
they were all in different countries there was nobody coming forward from the uk so i thought god i must be the only person in the uk that's husband's got bpd what's going on and i read loads of books to try and learn about it and got lots of information given to me that was incorrect from the professionals so then i thought hang on a minute i'm going to set my own thing up here i'm going to do this and i'm going to try and help people and get them the help and advice that they need and when i'd come back from blackpool I've always loved The Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz has always been a favourite story of mine and I know that there's lots of quotes from it that have always meant something to me. And even last week, you know, the, the quote that where she says she had the power all along, just had to learn how to use it, that's kind of how I feel now because I was given a platform to do the networking and that's ended. But that doesn't mean that I have to stop. That platform's gone, but I could have my own platform, you know. So there's always been things that come from it and... The irony was when I was in the Blackpool, the chap said, find your, because he wears Adidas trainers, the old, you know, the old school Adidas Samba or whatever they were. And he said, you know, he's got like hundreds of pairs of them. He has a brand new pair every time he's going to do a, a, a live event. And he said, find your shoe, find what's your thing. So I thought, red shoes, Dorothy, Wizard of Oz. So I went back and I dug out the wardrobe, these red shoes that I'd got. And it was so funny because I went back to my first networking event after it. And I walked in and I was like, sat down and then it came to me to speak. And I was like, hi, everybody, I'm Lisa Bailey Brown or LBB for short. And da, 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 da. and I was all jolly. And then I sat down and they were like, holy shit, where did that come from? We just learned more about you in that one time than the last six months of you networking. And I was like, it's the red shoes. It's the red shoes. What can I say? I left Kansas, which was Cornwall. And I went to Oz, which was the bright lights of the big city of Blackpool. And I've come back and I've just inspired and this is it. And so that then changed things again for me because then I started to be noticed as being somebody who was no longer quiet and frightened and sat there like, you know, oh, I sell plants for a living and hiding and putting my hand up. I was more confident. And when I set up to do the mental health stuff, I thought I need to be more confident because how can I convince people that, they will be fine if I'm not fine myself and so then thinking about the whole story of the yellow brick road and I did feel like I had literally been to, to Oz and Brad was the wizard and in the film the wizard doesn't actually tell Dorothy anything she didn't already know it's right. just that she has to go through this process to, to realize it and realizing that she did have the power and um, and I suppose as well for me that the whole journey of the yellow brick road then became in my head because I'm I do write as well so I'm a bit of a storyteller so it's probably easy for me to transfer it into a pro into a into a meaning but so for me uh, Dorothy goes along the yellow brick road and she meets the the scarecrow and the scarecrow's got no brains well I felt at the point when I went back out networking that I didn't have any of my own thoughts anymore my brain was frazzled and consumed with dark suicidal thoughts self-harm everything that was bad and awful about my husband's mental health and so when I went back out networking my brain started to work because people were talking to me about what their businesses were and what they were doing and I felt inspired and I felt absolutely triggered into doing good and then I carried on a bit further and I met the tin man and obviously for me the most painful thing in all of this and it's never going to change and my heart's always going to be broken because the man that I married and love he's not actually there anymore there's a different man that's there before me and I feel like I've lost him and my heart's always going to be broken and the tin man didn't have a heart but by meeting a lot of ladies in the networking group that became my friends they kind of 
they gave me a lot of love and encouragement so my heart was not fixed but my heart was being soothed by other people not in a you know it's all ladies there's no nothing dodgy about it but just felt like you know I am loved and and it, it will be fine it might not be what you wanted but it will be fine and then finally the lion I mean I'm a Leo anyway so I'm the lioness and in the star signs and that and I it's so funny because when I was a kid and watched the Wizard of Oz my grandma used to always and my grandma was a big inspiration in my life and when she died it really it broke me it really did I had to have counseling because I was so devastated she was gone mm. and the Wizard of Oz we used to watch it and she'd get my little brother on her knee and she'd be going put them up put them up come on and be like the courage and all of that and and actually the courage for me was the fact that I went to Blackpool and I came back and I came back braver than than I was before and realized that I did have the power all along I just had to learn how to use it and I then went back home back to Kansas and yeah everything was still the same as I'd left it Matthew didn't understand why I'd had to go and do this personal development thing quite frankly he didn't like it I don't think I think he thinks that that's changed me but it hasn't changed me it's just allowed me to be who I actually am and who I've always been but I just was too frightened and I've then gone on and obviously decided that I needed to do something about the whole name of the the, the page and me and my daughter watched Rocket Man and the film that you know the Elton John film and yeah. in there the song Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, we were listening to that and then literally the line came up and it just, and I've, I've actually got goosebooks now and every time I say it, and it just said, I finally decided my future lies be on the Yellow Brick Road. And I thought, it's beyond the Yellow Brick Road. This is what it is. I'm saying to people that the mental health journey that you're on with your loved one is like being on the Yellow Brick Road. And there is an end to it, but it means you've got to find yourself and you've got to look after you because if you don't look after you, you can't look after them. And it is okay to not be okay with it. It's okay to not be able to cope with it and deal with it. It's okay to walk away from it. You're not a bad person because I believe before that, you know, I always said to my kids, if you had cancer, I'd never leave him. How could people tell me to leave him? His mum would tell me all the time I'd leave him. I couldn't put up with that. And I was so adamant that you should never leave them because that's a bad person if you do that. Now I've realised it, it, it's not. You can't help it. You can only do so much. And to accept the fact that if he ends his life, it's not my fault is a massive thing. And obviously for him, he sees it as a negative because, and the kids do, you know. Michael's a bit different because he doesn't live with us, but the daughter's especially the middle daughter she really struggles with it because she says well you've always done everything for dad and now you're not you know why aren't you doing it why aren't you the same it's you that's changed it's not dad and how old is she she's 23 so michael's 26 she's 23 and the youngest who's matthew's biological daughter is bethany the youngest she's nearly 18 but she's lived with us the whole time and seen everything whereas michael and kaylee then michael moved out when he was about 16 and kaylee moved out when she was 20, 21. So they've not been at home and witnessed everything the same way that Bethany has. So she has a different outlook on it. But it is very difficult because when you tr you think to yourself, when you've got older kids and you try to explain to them how you feel about stuff, that they'd understand it more. But it's harder because when they're small, you don't have to explain the ins and outs and the details. And nobody wants to share details with their kids. You don't want your kids to know the ins and outs of what's going on. 
you know, I've tried to protect them for so many years of what I was feeling. They wouldn't see me cry. I'd go and cry in the bathroom, you know. They wouldn't they wouldn't hear the conversations because they'd be tucked up in bed and be asleep. Whereas yeah. now, there's no, there's no moving away from it. They're there all the time to see and hear. And we have always been a close family. And the family is sort of breaking off in different directions. And that's just because... You know, it's it's down to me, I think, and the fact that I really am struggling to cope with it, and that's that's sort of made me uh, made things difficult for me because I'm thinking I'm trying to help people, but at the same time now I'm struggling with it myself even more so. Um, Are you thinking? Do you think you're struggling with it more because you have more of an awareness around your identity and you have dreams that you want to chase now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. because I feel that in order to in order to live the dreams and the life that I, I really want to I'm gonna have to make choices that I never thought that I would make and also hurt people that I never thought that I would hurt because not intentionally but because if I stay as I am now going round on this merry-go-round that's not never ending I'm I'm gonna fall off mm-hmm. I'm gonna fall off and I'm gonna get hurt myself and you know the doctors have said that the the chances are that Matthew will take his life and we've all accepted and realized that that will come at some point don't know when and it is worse than in my opinion it's worse than being diagnosed with an illness whether it's heart disease or cancer that you they'd say to you you are going to die or you're not going to die because with this nobody knows when where how what why but we just know that he's not in a good place and one one of the times that he attempts it, it is going to be successful. It's only because he's not been successful, and he's and it's not because he's done it. And because people said it's just a cry for help. No, he's really tried to hurt himself. He's got more lives than a cat. And a few of those occasions, I've been there. And and also again with that, I started to think that that's what my reason was. That's what my purpose was to save him. Because the first two times he did it, I was there. First time I got the police and the fire engine and God knows what else came out to help him and save him. Because he was he was trying to gas himself in the car. And the second time, only a month later, he tried to hang himself. But by a stroke of luck, I happened to be in 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 the UK when you go to a nightclub or a bar the um there's always a, a bouncer to stop the women going into the men's toilets because the women's queues are always massive the women go to the men's and it's like they don't want that for obvious reasons well this particular time me and my friends got past the bouncer and got in and we shouldn't have been in there and we were in the cubicle and I looked up and there's Matthew with the belt and he was hanging himself from the at toilet the club. at the club and I shouldn't have been in that toilet, but I was. So my mind told me that you were meant to be there. You've saved him. So you need to be there every single time now. You've This is what your life is. You've got to save him. But the more I was getting em, em, embroiled in that, the less of myself was there. And I was just, you know, panic attacks. I wouldn't eat my food. If I tried to ring him at work and make sure it was okay, if I couldn't get hold of him, my anxiety was so bad that the palpitations would come and I couldn't eat. I'd go to the toilet, I'd have a bad stomach, and my kids would be going, Mommy, you'll be fine. Calm down, you're getting yourself in the straight. I'm I'm on I'm on medication now for anxiety because my anxiety has always been bad. I, I have I suppose what you would call a death phobic. Same as my mom, I've always been frightened of death and my brother dying when he was seventeen, that made it even worse. So all these things are, were there anyway, but then escalated and became more because of what was happening with Matt. But you see now 
the, the medication's working because it's stopping me from being so anxious and then I'm a bit more laid back but that's not just the medication that's also because I've accepted now that I could sit there and worry all night if I can't get a hold of him but if I look back every single time he has phoned me back and he has just been busy and he's not died but I've, I'm the one that's wasted my evening my week my month my year because does, does he have him. any way of relating to that does he is he in a place where he can he gets how that affects he, you yeah he knows I mean when we was driving back from Nottingham the other day when we took the grandkids back um I played Michael's podcasts to him through the car so he listened to all of them and then the last one came on was mine and I didn't switch it off and he listened and he he tries to make jokes about stuff and then at the end he just held my hand really tightly as if to say I know Aww. and my daughter Bethany was crying last night and he was at work and she said he does know mum he knows exactly what he's doing and he really doesn't mean it and I feel awful because I know he doesn't mean it but I can't deal with it unless he changes it and I can't change it for him and that's the thing that the kids don't understand well we need to help him change it I can't stop him from drinking he doesn't think he has a problem drinking for him helps his brain relax and makes him feel better makes him feel easier that he can go and hurt himself I then get triggered and frightened and worried and it just goes round in a circle. But I can't stop him drinking. I can't physically tell him. I've spent years telling him, you're not drinking, you're not doing this. And then I realised, I can't control him. He's got to control himself. And until he can, can do any of that, we are going to keep going round in this circle. I am going to keep getting hurt. And I am going to continue to feel sad and lonely and lost for... For, for the person that I married and loved and the fact that he's trapped away somewhere else. It's, yeah, it's, it's really, it's crap, to be honest. It's rubbish. It's, it's never in a million years would I have ever, ever imagined that we'd be in this situation. But we are. I don't know how to deal with it now. I don't, if I'm honest, I don't know from one day to the next, from one minute to the next you know, one minute I'm on a pedestal and I'm a princess and I can't carry any bags and he treats me absolutely amazing. And then the next minute he's had a drink and you say the wrong sentence to him and he's completely then triggered in a bad way. And I'm a bitch and God knows what, you know, it's it's and I can't deal with being spoken to like that because I actually don't really deserve it. And I know he can't help it and I know he doesn't mean it. As I said to my kids, it doesn't make it hurt any less. It doesn't make it feel any better. Because I don't have BPD, so my emotions are as normal as my emotions are for me because we're all different. Matthew's emotions are all completely dysregulated. They're all over the place. They're extreme highs, extreme lows. He's either really, really happy or he's really sad or he loves you or he hates you. There's no in-between. It's very... It's just all over. But I... Equally, whilst they're saying he's ill and he can't control that, I can't control my own instincts and feelings towards it. And it makes me very, very sad. It makes me feel extremely sad because at the end of the day, I do love him, but I I just can't. It's such a hard thing to deal with. I mean, I had probably, oof, if I had to guess, I'd say about a year with somebody that has bipolar disorder. Yeah. And I, you know, was single and I was cruising through life. And this is just a hand right before I met my husband, actually. And 
I swiped right on Tinder and I, you know, he's good looking and, and he said, I'm out of town. Let me connect with you when I get back. I said, okay. He comes back. I forget about him at this point, you know, going through life. I just had a couple conversations mm-hmm. with him on, t- on Tinder. I didn't, wasn't thinking anything. And all of a sudden on Sunday night, about two weeks later, I get a, a message from him and he's like, Hey, I'm, I'm back in town. I'm downtown. Um, I would love for you to come and have a drink with me. And it was a week. I said, no, nah, it's a school night. You know, I, I'm not going to go out drinking on a school night. I said, I'll connect with you another time. And about an hour later, uh, gotta love the persistence of somebody with BPD. Um, he calls me and he says, Hey, you have to come out. I'm downtown at this particular pub. And um, I'm with somebody that knows you. Next thing you know, he's put this gentleman on the phone who was my old boss from a local gym. And he says, hi, Harmony. Do you remember you? we worked together? And so I said, oh, my gosh, absolutely. We ended up talking for a few minutes. And then I think to myself, OK, I'll come down and meet you guys. Well, that was the beginning of a year-long crazy ride dealing with this person who I did not know obviously had BPD. I did not know he was a severe alcoholic. Alcohol was how he managed his sickness. And so, of course, our first couple weeks together, we partied. You know, we'd have drinks on my patio or whatever. Um, I should have known as a red flag that when he showed up to my house the first time, he had a backpack. And n- never trust a grown man with a backpack. Because that, unless they're in college currently, like something's not going right in their life. Um, and so, But he was charming and he was fun and he was handsome and he was all these things. And I just all, because I was so sucked into his charisma, as you well know, your husband's probably got that too. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't think about anything, but I was living in the moment. And then it was very soon that he wasn't able to suppress it anymore. He admitted to me that he was an al- a severe alcoholic. I said, well, we can't move forward with this relationship as long as you're drinking. I'm sorry. I said, I'll have solidarity with you. I'll stop drinking, but I can't go through this again. I'd already spent, you know, previous Mm time like abusing alcohol. People abused alcohol. I spent six years with somebody who was a legit alcoholic. And I was like, I can't do that again. I just can't. So that's your option. Well, he quit drinking. And for eight Mm -hmm. months, he was completely sober. And we ran Spartan races and we went to the gym together and did CrossFit and traveled and he got a really great job. As you well know, a lot of people that have mental illness issues are amazing. And just the world somehow, if they've got that charisma, the world sometimes just lands in their palm of their hand. They don't have to fight hard for things. Like, you know, I mean, it just, he has a lot of really good positives about him. And then all of a sudden, the moment that I turned my back, I had trust and it was literally, I wasn't out of his sight for maybe an hour. And so I literally wasn't even out of the zip code of Austin, Texas. Like I, I, and I had a weird pit in my stomach and you've probably felt this a lot Mm, as I was cruising along. There was no signal. It was just literally my intuition. And I thought something's wrong. I was probably on the road for about two and a half hours at this point. And I called him. I can immediately hear in his voice that kind of loosey goosey, ooh, that sing songy voice that drunk people get. And my heart, my heart dropped. And mm-hmm. pr- from that point on for about the next four months, you know, cause obviously we were living together. He was making really good money. He was very responsible. He had, a, you know, he was a co-person on my credit cards. I built my credit up for five years previous to meeting this. I don't mean to say that mean, but he drove no, no. me. He, I mean, it's hard not to, I know that he struggles with mental illness, but he literally took my life and put it in a food processor and turned the power button on. And, and mm-hmm. I was left just 
my life was in shambles. And so I had to then pull over the site. He charged all these concert tickets and, you know, was seeing another girl in the apartment complex. And, you know, I had to like do some investigative work to find out all this was going on. But in a literal short amount of time, I had to get the apartment sublet from Asheville, um, you know, so North Carolina to Texas, thank God for Facebook. I had all of the stuff that I'd purchased for the Austin apartment. I had to find people to come in and purchase it Mm. Um, because I, you know, had all this credit card debt because I had bought a bunch of stuff on the credit cards. He had act before I knew what was going on. He was, he had spent, used my credit card somehow. I still don't know how to pay for Ubers. Just when I think back on it now, I'm like, how in the absolute hell did he manage to do that? But you know, that manipulative thing that's like naturally in people that are suffering with that kind of thing. It just rocked my world. I've never experienced anything like it in my life. And I know that, you know, I, long story short, I supported him. He ended up coming back here. I told him, I said, I can support you. I will stand by you as a friend. Romance is off the table. As long as you're working towards your sobriety, I will help you in that in any way that I can, but there's no future relationship for us. There's not, we're not going to be ever be a couple like, but whatever you need to do since you were living with me, I will help you get on your feet and connect you yeah. with your family members, whatever. So I, you know, went and visited him at the mental hospital, which was the hardest thing I've ever had to do because, you know, he had a breakdown. I never let him come back to my house. So when we came back to North Carolina, there was about two months there where he was trying to get his, you know, what together. And he, now he's since back in Texas, but so I would go visit him and I, I would take him food and I would, you know, order him a pizza to the, you know, to the mental hospital so he could eat. And I was a supportive friend but that love was still there. You know, that compassion from a human being to a human being was still there. And just in that short amount of time, it broke my heart for him. So I couldn't imagine a 20 year relationship watching somebody go through that, like what that does to your, your insides, what that does Mm -hmm. to your, the, you know, how it changes your perspective on the whole entire world. And, you know, the fact that you are, coming from a place now that you've been going through this for so long that you're, you're fighting. I mean, you're not only fighting for yourself and your sanity and your future, but you're fighting for, you know, your children and stuff that goes without saying and your grandchildren, but you're fighting for the, your country. And that's huge because you're putting your efforts into that understanding, that empathetic understanding. There's so many people in your country that are dealing with trying to support somebody they love. That's got a mental illness issue. That's hard. But at the same time, it's got to be so rewarding, right? Yeah, it is. Because I think that when I when I started doing it, as I say, it was selfish reasons to begin with. It was because I just wanted someone to talk to. Mm-hmm. But but then as it went on, um, I had a conversation with a, a young girl who was 23. She'd basically, she'd been on some sort of mom's net app and somebody had said, oh, you need to speak to um, uh, Lisa from Beyond the Yellow Brick Road. And this lady was based in Swindon. And I always remember thinking, well, that's funny. She's in Swindon. How has she got my details? Well, it later turned out that I didn't realise, but it was Michael's girlfriend, Olivia. She was on this mum's net thing and she'd seen it. And she'd said, oh, speak to Lisa. So I only found that out about six months ago. So I spent ages thinking, how does this woman even know I existed? But she, she sent me a message outlining her story. And I just felt that I needed to speak with her. So I, it was late at night, it was about midnight. And I said, look, if you give me a number, I'll call you. We can have a chat. And I listened to her and she described her whole story with, with her husband. And then I said to her, right, well, I've got 
goosebumps because it's like, like literally listening to my own story. And I said, so I'm going to tell you now how I did deal with things, but then I'm going to tell you how I now deal with things. And at the end of it, she said thank you and she went away. And um, then she messaged me the next day and she said, I just wanted to say thank you because you've actually, you don't know what you've just done for me. She said, I went straight off the call and I went into the bedroom and I put my arms around my husband and gave him a hug and told him that it would be okay. And she said, and he started crying and for the first time ever he opened up and spoke about it and told her all the things he was feeling. And she says, and now we've made a plan. We're going to go to the doctors together and we're going to get him seen. And then about six weeks later, she messaged me again saying that ever since the conversation that me and her had she realised that she was going to go down the same path as me and she stops herself and now she's helping him but she's helping him but helping herself at the same time. She's not doing everything for him which as I said to her at the time I'm just a peer-to-peer support group. I'm not an experienced you know medical professional but in my opinion the people that have experienced it actually know more than some of the professionals because the professionals have learnt from the textbook that I said earlier is is a very old model and we live with it day in day out so we know what our partners brothers sisters whatever are like and we know what the triggers are mostly we know what to say and to do mostly doesn't mean we don't get it wrong but we give them more chance than what what normally happens when they go into hospital I mean Matthew when he went into hospital in um, in Cornwall you know, he already suffers with social anxiety, but he'd gone in there because he was suicidal and they took his shoelaces and his belt off of him but didn't think to take his bed sheets off of him and give him anti-ligature sheets. But he tried to hang himself with that and then they shouted at him like he was a child because he'd he'd basically FaceTimed me to say goodnight or goodbye, but I could tell. I knew what he was doing, so I got him to show me. I said, what's happening? And you know, and he, and he just showed me, he tied the bed sheets. So then I left Bethany on the Skype call and talking to him on FaceTime and um, I phoned the hospital and we were still on the call when they went in the room and they shouted at him like he was a child <gasps> and uh, said, you can't be doing that kind of thing. And so I obviously then, you know, I was, I was a voice that they didn't like because I was in their ear telling them that you can't do this. You can't bring someone into hospital and who's already got social anxiety and then expect them to go and sit sing, sit in the community area and sing Kumbaya. He says he wouldn't sit in the community area singing and dancing and anything when he's in a, a good place, never mind when he's thinking about killing himself or hurting himself in some way. I said, so you're, you're just adding to it. So I'm well aware of the fact that you need to um, stop them from isolating themselves. I says, but at the end of the day, Dr. Giva, who was his psychiatrist, she's gone back to New Zealand, uh, to um, South Africa now, which is really sad because she was brilliant. I said, but she said to me, if he wants to sleep, let him sleep because that's his safe place. Let him go to his safe place. He will be safe. You'll be, have time to relax. He'll come back out of it and he'll feel better. Because mm-hmm. for years before, I was told by the doctors, don't let him sleep, tell him he has to get up. His mum would be saying he can't stay in bed all day, get him up. So then I'd be saying get up, then he'd fall out with me and I'd be the one that was in the middle of this fallout when everyone else around me saying, tell him to do this and then they'd leave and go home and have a happy life. And um, 
it's just learning you you get to know yourself what your your loved one can and can't do sometimes you've got to be the voice for them but again that in itself sometimes is really difficult because I don't always want to be the voice I don't want to always be the one that's got to explain stuff you know so I mean it's and then too codependency for me I know that's not the case for everybody yeah but codependency was a part of my life I was codependent in every relationship I was in and it just <laughs> until I until I made peace with that and I understood what codependency was yeah. nothing was ever going to change and I didn't like being codependent I didn't like for me me helping was a distraction with the guy I was with for six years that was an alcoholic, he, all my, uh, like my whole purpose was helping him. Mm-hmm. My whole purpose was talking to him about his mom dying when he was, in, you know, 18. And my whole purpose was how, you know, I'd be at work just like you, like, is he, how is he doing today? Is he okay? Is he happy? Is he going to yeah. start drinking this afternoon when he gets off work? And then I won't see him for three days. Like I couldn't function. It, his disease became my disease. And I think that yeah. that's what a lot of people don't understand is that when you're supporting somebody that's got mental illness, generally there's some kind of a substance abuse situation going on and you get the, the person that is the helper gets addicted to helping. And yeah. so that's why you see on shows like, you know, there's a show here called Intervention. I don't know if you guys have access to it over there, but it was on for a long, long time. You know, it was a documentary style hour long TV show where they would showcase the person that was addicted and they would cameras would follow them around and they did various types of drugs and um, drinking and all the things. And, you know, lo and behold, they would gather in a motel room somewhere local to the sit into their house. And they would invite the, the person that's addicted in and say, Hey, it's our last interview. And then <clears throat> they would walk into the room and there would be their family members sitting in a circle. And they would have these reactions where most of them would get pissed off immediately. They would turn around and run out. The camera had to follow them, you know, this whole thing. But every single person in those circles, most of the episodes were addicted to helping the person. That's all they could all focus on was how are we going to help so-and-so today? And their lives were crumbling. And and in watching that show, because they ultimately bring in an interventionist and, you know, they, I learned a lot from watching that show, which is, I I watched it because I needed peace. I watched it because I needed to understand I wasn't crazy, but I learned a lot from watching that because I realized there's nothing I can do to help anybody. I don't care what their issues are. No. That's it's not my place to do anything to help anybody. I can be a support system, but if I spend my life trying to support and help somebody long term, it's not going to end well for me. I might it's like sacrificing yourself. It's like jumping into yeah. the volcano. Yeah. And until I realized that, nothing was going to change. And so understanding that help letting them hit their bottom when they're addicted or whatever that's one thing, but it's a whole different thing when they're dealing with a legitimate mental illness. And, and our instinct is to save somebody if they're, if they're dying, our instinct is to, yeah. to be there to catch them. So what you're doing with the Yelp beyond the yellow Brick road organization is so powerful and needed because there are people hiding all over the world that yeah. are not communicating with their family and their friends about the the trauma that they're living with every day because they don't want the facade to be broken. They want to share their life on Facebook and look at what me and my family are doing. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Like how how many times have you said that in a day? And meanwhile, there's a war zone going on behind your front door and people are just having to deal with it by themselves. And, and then who knows what the side effects of that are suicide from the helper. I mean, what's Mm -hmm. to keep 
you as, you know, helping your husband and dealing with this for two decades plus, not one day just, I'm out. You just run, drive your tree, into your car into a tree. It's, it's like, funny because, well, it's not funny, obviously, but it's, I, I explained to them the other week that I've, I'm very much a, uh, I'm, I'm obviously frightened to die and I don't want to die or anything like that. And I've never thought about doing anything to myself, but a few weeks back, I was sat in my car crying and I just thought, I actually can't deal with this anymore. So I thought I've got two options. One is to kill myself. And then I sat there for a minute and thought about it. And then I shook and I was like, not happening because I can't do that. And the other option is to run away. And then I sat there and I thought, if I run away and just disappear and just be me and don't worry about anything, they'll all be fine. They'll get over it. And then I thought about Michael and Kaylee and Bethany and the kids and Matthew and my mum and my dad. And I thought, I actually can't do that to I can't do it. But that feeling, the fact that I felt that feeling, that in itself made me feel so bad. I felt so, so sad that I've allowed myself to get to this point feeling like that. And Well, it's been your identity too, right? I mean, your identity yeah. has been his, his caretaker, his helper, his support system. Yeah. Well, that's another thing. So like in this country with... Um, the, the, the whole mental health system, you know, yeah. they they do a carer's assessment because you're his carer. And I'm saying, no, I'm his wife. Yeah, but you're his carer. No, I'm his wife. Yeah, but you are his carer. So basically what you're wanting me to say is that I'm signing a bit of paper to say that I'm responsible for him. So whatever happens, it's not your fault. It's mine. And I says, but it isn't mine. I said, I'm his wife. I look after him because that's what you do for the man or woman or child, whoever that you love. You know, it's uh, what you do. It's not It's not a job title. It's it's just what you do. And I said, and you're just basically wanting to pass it on to somebody else because whatever happens, no one could say that you, well, well, she had a care. He had a care. It was his wife. You know, look at this bit of paper. She signed it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they don't like people like me because I am quiet and stuff. But if you really piss me off and rile me up, then I will. I'm five foot two, but I can shout. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever, and this is just out of curiosity, but I'm sure people, when they listen to this, they're going to relate in so many levels and may wonder the same thing. But have you walked the, through the steps in your head of what life would look like for your husband if you weren't there? Yeah, yeah. And it's always horrible. It's that's my biggest fear is that he'll kill himself and it will be my fault because I know he loves me yeah and I don't think that I don't think he could deal without me being there so that's yeah so what does that look like moving forward like how does your I know it's got to be scary like you have you're seeing a big mountain in front of you right now visually like how in the hell do I cross that mountain it's very difficult because when you can't have a normal conversation with someone who's got BPD, because when you're trying to explain how you feel, they don't have any um, connection to your feelings because they don't feel the same way. They don't have those feelings, those emotions, so they cannot relate to it or understand. So to them, you're just being negative or you're being not nice. You'll say to me, you've been cruel to me. And I'll say to him, I'm not being cruel, I'm trying to be kind. But he's got no concept of it. And, you know, it's just difficult. It's really hard. Um, I don't don't know how you do it because I'm telling you with my ex, God bless him. I mean, I only wish him the best. But I don't know if I wouldn't have gone through those previous relationships where I was codependent and I I became the helper 
if I would have been able to walk away from him as quick as I did. But because I've experienced it with multiple people to varying yeah. degrees, I was just like, absolutely not. Like there's, I know what the, it, it's prison. It's it's, it's a, mm-hmm. it's prison because you can't, you'll never, for me, I knew I'd never, I'm never going to have a normal life. I'm going to be, I'm going to be manipulated. And that was the thing that was so hard for me to differentiate with his bipolar disorder and then somebody that just was having some emotional issues because of maybe childhood trauma or whatever. And they were just a grown up and drinking <laughs> with him. He was legitimate bipolar. And, yeah. but the, the thing that was so hard for me to wrap my head around and still is, is his, uh, his ability to manipulate me. And so I, I walked that line of understanding how much of this are you aware of? And you're just being a selfish prick. And how much of this is you just being in your head? Because after the fact, when I, I was trying to disconnect our lives and, and make sure that, you know, things were landing the way they were meant to land when I was separating us, I made communication with his child's mom, her mom, um, his family, you know, and had conversations with them. And you know, they've all pretty much washed, washed their hands of him. I mean, yeah. Those eight months that he was sober, everybody was like, I thought he was on medication. And I said, I didn't even know he had bipolar disorder. He didn't tell me until, you know, it was basically when I had to take him to the hospital. That's how I knew because he signed the paperwork to let me be in on meetings as a family member, even though we weren't married. Um, So I was sitting in on conversations and I was watching him interact with this doctor like I was completely out of the loop of what was going on with this guy. So I was heartbroken and all of that, but how did he for eight months, this is what's so crazy to me. How for eight months did he maintain such a normal air quote, whatever that means, life, working, functioning, exercising, drinking kombucha instead of, you know, drinking the booze. Like it's crazy to me. I mean, it must've been so hard for him to, to, he wanted so badly to, to be in a relationship with me and to have that normal life that he fought internally against every temptation for eight yeah. months. And it just, as soon as I turned my back, he couldn't, he couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. And he tried, I mean, he tried, but I don't begrudge his, his drinking because I couldn't imagine what it would be like to be in that frame of mind no. and not met, be medicated. It had to have been so hard for him, you know, but I wonder how did he do that? Cause he did the same thing with me. I'm going to kill myself and I'm going to, if I don't have you, I'm going to, it was just, and so I had a, do you, my question is, do you struggle with understanding his awareness of any manipulation that goes on and yeah. the mental illness? Yeah. I, I, only because other people have pointed it out to me that, you know, that's, that's not, a, um, that's not a trait of the illness. That's just him being an ass. And then I go, but, no, because that's he. I used to think I used to think he was a narcissist because some of the things he would do, and then when he was diagnosed, I realised that the symptoms are very similar to that. But the the way that all the things over the years that he did. So, for example, I I accidentally crashed his car into the side of the house, and yeah, it did cause a lot of damage. But it was an accident. My my heel on my shoe got stuck under the accelerator, and I couldn't get my foot off but he didn't speak to me for three weeks. Now, most people would be angry and shout, and but he ignores me for weeks at a time. 
and at Christmas just gone, you know, his his grand grandfather passed away and um he, he was the only one there that was drinking and he ran out and he said go to go to the shop and get some more and I said no. And so then he just wasn't happy and he ignored me and he ignored me till about the 7th of January that was the 30th of December but you see the problem is because Matthew as he was before when he's been in a good place he's a loving kind Mm -hmm. funny we're compatible in every single way shape and form but for that 20% of the time when he's not good that 20% is really hard oh I know I know I mean, I, I can't, the only way that I can relate is just that feeling of no control over the situation. That yeah. that has got to be the hardest thing that I've ever dealt with in my entire life amongst different relationships I've been in. It's been a pattern. And I honestly feel like I got addicted to that. I, yeah. I learned about my, once I started working, doing personal development, I learned that I learned the reasons why I was subconsciously choosing these relationships because in finding people that were more broken than I was, I didn't have to put any focus on my shit mm. and I could just be the martyr. I yeah. could, I could scoop in there and help, but look at what I did. It gave me value. It gave my life yeah. a sense of value. And I realized finally, I don't want my value to be from helping somebody get their shit together and being their support yeah. system and their, you know, their wheelchair and their life. Like I want to have my own shit going on. I want to, I yeah. want to be happy. I want to experience life without this cloud following me around everywhere of worry. Yeah. Is somebody cheating on me? Is somebody going to come, are, is he going to come home tonight? Is he going to come home in a week? Is he going to mm-hmm. get arrested for selling drugs? Is he, I mean, I was in a constant state of panic and worry. Yeah every minute of every day in any, on all these relationships. And I just, I guess that that's, I just realized, and it was not, it was really hard. I just realized I, under no circumstances, can I control anybody else but myself? And so how do I, how do I want my future to look? And so seriously, Lisa, like until this last couple years and separating myself from my ex and really just grabbing my life by the balls. I started working out. I started, you know, just really taking care of myself and putting myself first above everybody. Yeah. I didn't know life could be this way. I, and I'm a hundred percent convinced that the husband that I have, it's the first time I've ever been married. We got married February of 2019. I know for fact that I would not have been able to get somebody as awesome as him. And so loving without the drama and all the things, just a whole real beautiful person there's no way I would have gotten him to want to marry me because I would have sabotaged it. I wouldn't have felt worthy of it. I would have, I, I would have done something to screw it up. Yeah. But I can relate, I can relate to that because I don't feel worthy of, of anything, to be honest. I feel if anyone says anything nice to me, like, oh, you look nice or compliments are very hard. I just don't, I don't have a very high opinion of myself. And I don't, I don't, I don't tend to think about the future because I'm, very much focused on the here and now because I've had to be but mm-hmm. I suppose I'm just I'm just a girl who is frightened because I love him I can't cope with it and but I also know that I have a life to live we only get one yeah and, um I'm scared that I'll get down the line and either he's gonna kill himself and then I'm gonna be devastated with all of that which even if I wasn't with him I'd still be devastated Mm -hmm. or be there 
or, or leave the situation and then he kills himself and I kind of feel like that the, the end game is going to be the same thing and at the end of the day that is devastating for me but it's going to devastate the kids and the grandkids and it will be my fault and I try to to not think like that but it's really hard it's really hard to not oh I'm sure but and you've got to I mean there's so many emotions and the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I know there's going to be people that listen to this episode that relate so much but just all the feelings like for example something that somebody wouldn't want to talk about the relief if something did finally just like let's just let it happen is, is it going to happen is it not going to happen but the thinking about it back and forth I've had, I've talked to multiple women who were like, I just wanted it to be done some way, somehow. Like I, there was part of me that had major guilt feelings because not that you want somebody to kill themselves. Absolutely not. But that, that way that our brain starts thinking like, let's just be done with it somehow, some way. Then there's that whole part of you that's having to deal with the guilt of that now. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've actually thought like that. I've thought like that before. I thought in one sense, I wished it was over because I can't cope with the the, the the what ifs but then I've sat and I've cried my eyes out because I thought that's not what I want I just want him to be well and be who he was before and go back to how it was but two things we're not going to go back to being in our 20s because we're 20 years down the line and secondly um, unless he helps himself nothing is going to change and He's got to understand that me not doing stuff for him isn't me not caring. Me me seemingly not caring doesn't mean that behind the scenes I'm not a wreck still that's crying and worried. Have you um, noticed that in your in your your trip to more self-care and like connecting with yourself by going to these network meetings and stuff, have you noticed any positive changes in him that that are kind of shocking? No, he no. he's taken he's taken it negatively. He doesn't like it. He said he that since I've been doing that, I've become too absorbed in my work. But trying to explain that I work from home, I can't, you know, when you work from home, you can't just shut it down. And when you're trying to run your own business, you're doing things that you wouldn't do if you were employed. And, you know, me talking to lots of people, I think, you know, I, I lost some weight and starting to exercise and I've signed up for a charity bike ride. And it's kind of like, okay. you can't do that. You won't do that. And it's, I spoke to a mental health nurse and she said that's because he's frightened. He's frightened that this is taking you away from him. And I said, but it's not. So all he needs to do is stop drinking and realise he's ill and get himself the help that he can rather than relying on me to do it. And she said, well, he won't see it that way because that's what happens. This illness means that he will just see it as this is you moving away from him. I mean, shit, even people that don't have mental illness and they're with a partner and they're going through life and they're living on the, pretty much on the same trajectory and there's no mental illness involved. And then mm-hmm. one of them, one of the people in the relationship starts pursuing things that is good for them. Yeah. That causes dysfunction in a, in a typical relationship. So I yeah. couldn't imagine. I mean, yeah. I've been with plenty of people. If I started making better choices for myself, they took it personal because what mm-hmm. happens is when you're. It, and for, it happened, it's happened with my friendships. Like if, if the better I've done in my life, the more it highlights the areas of their life that need improving. You know what I mean? And yeah, so yeah. in order to, that's why you'll see as you start rubbing elbows with different people, 
meeting people in your charity bike run and all of that stuff, you're going to start rubbing elbows with people who are people that you want to aspire to be like. They're, they're people that, and I, and I say this, I've said it on almost every episode of the podcast that that's why it's so important who we surround ourselves with. Because if you hang around a barbershop long enough, you're going to end up getting a haircut. And so the people that you choose to be around, you just naturally organically start wanting to be how they are. And whether it's a bad group or a positive group, I'm sure you running with these people that are networking and having conversation with that Brad gentleman, that's an inspirational speaker and entrepreneur, like you're going to naturally gravitate and cause you're going to look up to them and you're going to see that these are people that are not just well put together. That's just who they are. They're people that have struggled with trauma and tragedy that have overcome that and are now, I mean, I can totally envision you standing at a podium telling your story and making and being what I love to call a ripple creator and sharing your story and inspiring people that are sitting in the audience and listening to you. And you could have a role in changing their life forever for the good. And that is so empowering. Like that's so it's, it's, it makes me look up to you that you have the courage. That's why when I listened to that episode with you and your son, for people listening, her son's got a podcast called the Tangled Minds podcast. He's in my podcast accountability group and he's doing a great, great, great job. But I listened to that episode with you and I couldn't stop listening to it. I mean, I was sucked in. That's why I reached out to you to have you on the podcast because I just was so taken aback by your story. It really impacted me for a lot of reasons. Had I never dealt with anybody that had mental illness, I would still have been impacted by your story because how could you not be? You have devoted your entire life to other people. You have devoted your entire life to the care of your husband and to make sure that he's okay. And in doing that, you have suppressed every single want and desire for the most part that you've probably wanted. And now to be in a place in your life where you're taking baby steps, which I think is what's important for people that are gonna listen to this episode, it's taken those baby steps, even though it's painful and it's uncomfortable and it's awkward and you immediately wanna turn around and go back to where you just were, you're still doing it. And that is, if it gives you, if it takes you another 10 fucking years to get to where you wanna be, at least you're taking steps forward. And that's what I think is important. That's why I wanted you on because I wanted people to hear the truth in your voice. I wanted people to hear your story. And because there's going to be so many people out there that are resonating with everything that you're saying and they don't know how to, they may never take a step forward. And so the fact that you're in Plymouth, you've gotten up, you've gotten dressed. Do you have your red heels on today? No, I've actually got flip flops on today. Oh, still love it. Yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 I I don't think I could walk on the cobbled floor here, to be fair. (laughs) But I love that you're not, and I'm sure you have your days where you don't feel like dealing with the world. I mean, we all do. I, I do sometimes, but you're still showing up. And I think that you probably have an inkling inside of you that you know you were, you were created for something more. And, and it's awesome to see like your post that you posted on Facebook the other day about finally being, you know, 44 and understanding your worth. Yeah. Anytime in the future that you start questioning that, just go back and read that post mm-hmm. to be reminded that yeah. there's a powerful Lisa inside you that's trying to come out. And it's just natural that we want to suppress that down because it's going to rock the boat. People yeah. are going to start getting freaked out if they start seeing my, it's part of my bliss broker program is it's like a mantra that I have for my coaching program is to, I want to help people find their spark, chase their spark and live vividly. 
And I, I always love to say that inside of us, we all have a warrior. We all have an inner warrior. But a lot of times we need help sussing that out. And that's what I live for. That's why I leap out of bed every day so that I can have conversations with, with women. That's why I'm candid when I do IGTVs and stuff. I don't care how much I have to throw myself under the bus and talk about, you know, times in my life where I was so miserable dealing with a bad relationship or whatever that I would self-medicate and I would have 80s parties and I would get wasted and I would wake up the next morning in my bed feeling like shit and not remember how I got there. You know, just I, you know, drank like on the verge of alcohol poisoning because I had I was so hurt inside that all I knew how to do was self-medicate and drink. And that was just a handful of years ago that 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 was happening at the end of me in my last relationship because I didn't know how to process. I was mourning the loss of the relationship. I was hurt for him. I, I felt a sense of responsibility. I was going through that whole grief process because yeah. I felt like I let him down. Should I have stayed committed to him? Should I should I be supporting him? I the, I remember like it was yesterday, the last time he walked away from me. I, he, he, he had an Uber come pick him up and take him wherever the hell he is now in the world. And it was the last time I saw him, he stopped and turned around at the end of the driveway and looked up at me and smiled. And even right now, it makes me a little, you know, like I want to cry because the romantic love was not there. I first had to admit that. What I was feeling for him was sympathetic love empathetic love, human being to human being. There's no way we were going to ever be romantic again. That dynamic shifted a long ago because I became his helper. And you can't have passionate romance when you're caretaking. You know, it's just, it goes by the wayside. So the last time that I watched him walk down that driveway, I just thought I had to grieve that. I had to rip the bandaid off because it was either him or me. I was, I was either going to choose him and help him and be imprisoned by having to be his caretaker, or I was going to be able to go out and spread my wings and have a life. Yeah. That's, I hate that's the situation, but I had to really start looking at that particular situation with him and his bipolar disorder that I can't, I have no power to do anything for him. And, and I just, I chose me for the first time in my life. I will say that. And I don't know that if I would have been able to do that had I met him at 22, I wouldn't have that life experience of knowing that it's going to be okay if I put myself first. I had been through that so much where I had let shit get really bad and broken it off with somebody and then had the courage to walk away and it was fine that you know as well as I do you have to do something over and over and over to to make yeah. peace with making that decision and that's you know you standing up you finding a way to walk that line of being supportive of your husband and keeping your family together and also going out into the world and networking and finding yourself and exercising and agreeing to be a part of a charity bike ride like that's a mountain for somebody that's going through what you're going through and I, I celebrate that because that's not easy so bravo to you for showing up for yourself <laughs> in the ways that that you know some people never do Lisa some people they are like you and they see their their life and and they imagine how their life could be but they never chase it they just stay and then all of a sudden they wake up and they're 70 and their life's gone yeah. and they realize they've lived their life for everybody. So the fact that you can do that, I guess I just don't want you to leave this conversation today without knowing how much I look up to you and how much I I believe in what you're doing. I mean, I, I've talked about it to several people about your Beyond the Yellow Brick Road organization. So that being said, I feel like I could talk to you for hours. How is that organization going and how does that look in the future for you? Um, well, at the moment, it's been quite quiet, really. I think that um, because of the COVID situation, people are obviously at home with their families. And I thought that I'd probably get a lot more, because a lot of the stuff is, I don't post masses of stuff on the page. I have a group thing and people message me privately. And I have had some, but I haven't had as many as as what 
I were having and I think that that's probably just because they're they're at home and they probably feel a bit more relaxed because their loved one is there and they can see them and, and know they're safe because a lot of the questions tend to be the same thing you know I, how do I cope with my daughter going off to work I'm, I can't do anything all day I think she's going to kill herself and that kind of thing and so that's been quite quiet but um for the future so over in the uk we we can either be a charity or we can be a cic which is a community interest company and i don't know which way i'm going to go with it because charity status is a lot more involved and i need treasurers and all sorts and i'm not really set up for that but i'm, I'm going to try and get a re- website done um because i think facebook has been great but facebook has kind of has done what it can uh it's a static thing and uh you post a post and then the next post and so on whereas i need i need to have um i need to have something that's more static in the sense of a website with the detailed information so what happens here is you go to your gp the gp refers you to the hospital and you go to the hospital and then they do loads of tests and talks and all that and come up with a diagnosis and say to you this is what you've got and scribble on a bit of paper go and look on google and research bpd and so off we went and matthew obviously didn't look because he wouldn't even think of looking at anything i did the research bought a load of books that had nothing to do with what he'd got so you're misguided because there is a lot of crap that's on the internet that's not real that's Mm. people trying to help and make stuff but it doesn't help because you need actual factual stuff to help you so i wanted to um create something that would mean that it was a way of people finding the information when they've been diagnosed or the family member can find because a lot of the the groups and things in this country are patient-based so they're all based on the person that's ill and with a little bit of detail about the families but then i'm thinking we need more of it the other way we need more info for the families because while you're on that waiting list and while you're in the process of waiting to be seen if the families are well supported and can learn and understand more about their loved one's illness, then they're going to save the NHS a lot of money because they're going to be the ones that are essentially keeping them, you know, as well as they can. There are going to be people that slip through the net. There's going to be people that don't, you know, they, family members that just cannot cope, like I said, that can't do it. And that's fine too. But for those that can and want to try, there should be more support for the families because the families are the ones that are doing the work of the medical profession when they're not around and over in in the uk we have so obviously there's a lot of cancer charities and there's one called macmillan i don't know if you've heard of it but macmillan nurses are basically like a bank of nurses that will care for family members when they're at the end of their life with the cancer treatments and that and so they support the loved ones that are going through the process leading up to the death and beyond they help them financially they help them with information and i just thought if i could do the same sort of thing so what macmillan is for cancer families if i could do the same with beyond the yellow brick road for for the families with a mental illness at the focus then i'd be happy because i could safely know that i've helped people but that's a long way off down the line because a i don't have any money so financially it's not something that i could put money into and obviously with covid lots of people have have got issues but people don't have the money to donate and such like that so it's a very difficult thing i have i have had um a little bit of money donated to me towards getting a website but it swings and roundabouts you know we 
we with one hand you know i've got, got all these ideas of things i want to do on the other hand i don't have the money to do them but if i always say if i won the lottery if i was rich there's no two ways i would be putting money into the mental health system because wherever you are in the world whoever you are we we all have an amazing thing and that's our brains and for some of us unfortunately our brains can lead us in a in a, in a direction that's not so great and doesn't matter what we what we do what we say we the brain is controlling us and we can't control the brain you know mm-hmm. and sometimes we're not lucky enough to have that control and and do things that we shouldn't be doing and sometimes it's just because somebody's a bad person it doesn't necessarily mean it's mental health but we all deserve a chance to try and be who we we should be and if there's no resources out there for helping people then that's even less of a chance really something like an organization like beyond the yellow brick road i could totally see people standing up for that and donating if you had i mean it's like i like to say you have to be the squeaky wheel they're not going to show up and help you and donate if they don't know who you are. And so that's that kind of, that's where that work comes in is having to show up every day and get online and post. And I don't doubt for one minute that if you started going live on social media platforms and started talking about what was going up, obviously you emotionally have to be ready for that. But I don't doubt that there's not hundreds of thousands of people that would support an organization like that and helping to, I mean, could you not, like, that's the fun part, right? Seeing how, how much bigger this could be, like the Beyond the Yellow Brick Road organization, having their own bank of mental health nurses, that it could, there's no reason why it couldn't be awesome. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's what made me think about it, because I was thinking about the fact that it's it's, it's the whole picture, it, it is very similar to to the, the, the cancer side of things, when people are off work sick, and then they can't pay their bills, so they get help with finances, we lost our home because, you know, but there was no support for support for us. The most support I got was £200 to go and have a spa day. And I had to prove that I'd spent it on a, a spa day or something nice. But I actually paid a bill with it. And I just got a receipt from somebody else because I thought, I've got to pay my bills. Yeah. You know, it's just, why would I go and have a spa day? Well, you need time to do something nice for you. Don't really feel like doing anything nice when I can't afford to buy food or pay my bills, you know. Yeah, who, like who so gave that? Was that so it, it, it's, it's, it's from the government. Yeah, it's a very it's bizarre. It, honestly, it's just absolutely messed up. Um, so you basically you're going to have to whip out those red heels. You're going to start having to go speak to government agencies and be like, listen, this is what my yeah. plan is. You're going to have to be the squeaky wheel because I don't yeah. doubt for one minute that it's not something that could really be amazing for a lot of people. And a lot of times you just need that support and you need somebody else to get excited and say, no, it's going to seem daunting and crazy and hard, but there's no reason why you couldn't make it work. I mean, none, (laughs) none whatsoever. It it would be overwhelming, but I think there's a need for it. Honestly, I really do. I feel like there's a, there's a need for support strictly for family and friends and people in the ecosystem of somebody that's struggling with mental illness. So I will just stay on your ass about it. And every once in a while, I'll be like, what's going on with the Yellow Brick Road organization, Lisa? Yeah, what's happening? Well, I know that you have stuff to do. I I, know, I feel like I could talk to you forever and would love to again, even if we're yeah, not definitely. recording a podcast. The reason why I wanted you on to share is because you are 
you guys can't see her, but she's on my Skype and she's smiling really big. And those are the people that I love having on here because even though you're going through everything that you're going through, you still can choose to see the joy. You've chosen to have gratitude. You've chosen to shift your perspective and see the things that you have rather than focusing on the things that you don't have. And I'm sure that that waxes and wanes, right? Some days you have days where you're like, fuck it all, which is normal. (laughs) Even if you didn't have anything going on in in your life that was heavy, we still do that. But it's important to to share stories like this so that people can hear that there is light at the end of the tunnel and you do matter and you are amazing. And I don't even get to see you, unfortunately. I wish I could give you a big hug, but if, if I was near you, I would be one of those people that was supporting you all the time and saying, no, keep going, keep going, keep going. You've got this. You know, so when you pull away here today, after we've had our conversation, (laughs) just know that you've got a woman that's, you know, been through a lot of shit herself that really finds inspiration in what it is that you're trying to create. And, you know, that hopefully I'll be one of those voices in the back of your head on days where you're not feeling it, where you have can find the courage to make forward motion and positive change when you're not really wanting to. Because that's what community is about. That's what I love about, you know, my accountability groups and checking in. I mean, even on the podcasting accountability group with your son, we check in with each other every day, even if it's not about podcasting. I mean, we've been doing that for months. And so I've got a all female accountability group. And then I've got the podcasting all stars. And every single day I can reach out to them and say, hi, I can vent, I can whatever. And there's support there. And I feel like I've changed ever since I knew that I had people that are kind of in my fan club. We all love each other, you know, even though we've never met in person. (laughs) So um, there's there's some power and support. Yeah, definitely. And I do, I do really appreciate it. It's, um, it's, it's hard for me to, because to me, it's just what I do. It's just normal life. There's no, I'm not doing it for any ulterior motive. It's not definitely not a glory seeker. I hate in fact, I'm glad that no one can see me because I hate, I hate it. And for my job, I have to keep showing up and people seeing me on Zoom calls and stuff. And I'm just getting used to it. And I keep posting pictures of myself to try and convince myself that I'm okay. You know, this is me. And that, and I'm like, it's just really hard. But I'm learning to accept nice comments because, you know, it's not nice for the person who's giving you a comment if you're going to basically say, oh, don't be silly. So thank you. I appreciate it. Oh, no, it's it's a long time to actually look at somebody when they complimented me and say thank you. Like, just to say thank you. It's it's very uncomfortable. And when you're not used to that, it's it's awkward. And so <laughs> to get say, for you to keep showing up, like I said, and and putting foot pictures of yourself online, that's your inner warrior trying to come out. Yeah. yeah. So however it feels comfortable <laughs> you for you, keep letting her come out because I like what I see. You guys can't see her, but she's stunningly beautiful. Her smile could light up a damn room, but I get it. At the same time, yeah. I completely get where you're coming from because uh, it's been a practice for me to get to this point. There, you know, a couple years ago, I wouldn't have been able to get on and do my lives and do IGTVs yeah. every week. It was practice. It was just practice. And putting yeah. myself, putting yourself out there, scary. Yeah. But I, I, I feel it in my bones. You've got something bigger coming your way, and I just know that you've got a, a fan over here in North Carolina that is um, mm-hmm. eager to watch you make all these beautiful things happen. Thank you very much, lovely. And equally, you have a fan in the UK as well. So oh, I'm sure you've you. got lots of fans in the UK, <laughs> be fair, but you've got another one. Oh, good. Well, I feel like I'm getting teared up because I have such a connection with you, but I will, I will keep in touch with you. This doesn't have to be our last Skype call. I would love to connect with you again. And 
I'm yeah. always here if you need to reach out. Now that you know more about me, you know that I can relate. And yeah, um, yeah. even if you just want to say hi, I'm here. I guess that's it. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and I'll keep in touch with you on the podcast release. Thank you very much. Have a good day. You're Take welcome. Care. Bye. See you All later. Right, bye. Bye.